Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall and the host for today's podcast. Dramatic Pause was created by the Firehall Arts Centre in response to the closure of live performing arts centres across the world and in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This continued action has created the longest dramatic pause theatrically in recent history and has affected the employment of countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrators, and production staffs. Some theaters and arts organizations have begun producing works for very limited audiences, but the industry continues to suffer and in Great Britain and the US, Theatres are being forced to close their doors permanently, putting staff and creative artists in their communities out of work permanently. And in turn, those closures have had huge impact on the emotional health of audience members and lovers of live performance and on the local economies in those communities. My guest today is Elaine Avia. Uh, Elaine is a playwright, screenwriter, educator and dramaturg whose works have been produced all over the world. Her work was recently seen at the Fire Hall in her co-production with Victoria's Puente Theatre of Fado, the saddest music in the world. Welcome, Elaine. It's so great to see you, even though listeners can't, and even though I can't give you a hug, because we're talking via Zoom. The first thing I want to ask you is, I think I may have pronounced your name incorrectly. Oh, yeah. That's right. It's Avila. Avila. All right. Well, welcome, <laughs> Avila. I'm really glad you're here. So what have you been doing during this COVID time? Well, um, I have been teaching throughout the pandemic, the next generation of writers. This is my third semester teaching during the pandemic. And I've also really been looking at how stories have changed because of being in the pandemic. So we're really wrestling with that with my students this semester. Um, I'm also, I'm also, I'm doing quite a lot. I've been publishing quite a bit, which I can talk to, <laughs> talk to you about more. Um, doing a lot of reaching out to people in new ways and looking at how we can use this Zoom stage. When you say you've been teaching, obviously you would have had to change how you teach. So you're teaching online. Yes. And, and you're also talking about how stories have changed. I'm really intrigued about what you mean by that. How have stories changed? Well, this is the first semester where I really decided to wrestle with that with my students. So, for example, I don't know if you've watched television and suddenly you see it differently. Like you say, oh, my God, a crowd scene. I wish I were in a crowd. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I say, in some cases, I go, they're not social distancing. They need to be social, phys well, physically distancing. Social distancing is a whole different thing. Physical distancing is staying apart by six feet. Social distancing is shutting yourself off from the social aspects of life. So I, those two words are really kind of intriguing to me that we started out using social distancing and now we're, I'm trying to use physical distancing. Well, yeah, and so that, that's where I started too, is I started looking at all those words. Like if we had said, I'm social distancing or I'm physically distancing a year ago, people would say, what? <laughs> or, you know, I'm expanding my bubble. Or, but there's a whole lot of new words like COVIDiots we've heard. Uh, what another one is that people are having to either turbocharge their relationships because you're you're at home all together all the time all of a sudden depending on your situation um or zumping is a new word which means that you break up over zoom wow so, so, there's so many words new words that it shows that we really 
are starting to change. And one of the most exciting things I heard was from a British educator uh, who was speaking during our faculty faculty development days at Douglas College. And she was saying, we have an opportunity to, uh, to, to deal with this in our stories. And she said that to her theater students and her creating, create, creation students. And I, I was really moved by that because uh, if you think about it, we didn't really hear very much about the Spanish flu because people wanted to forget it immediately. And yet, if we knew more about it, we'd be better able to deal with deal with this situation and almost anything we write right now is useful to future generations like you know what 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 were the shortages in the stores how did we deal with it um so i've started uh i even wrote uh, a new monologue from my play that was set during the spanish flu because it's been with us all this time apparently I, i listened to another great podcast about how the spanish flu um, affected history, which is something we never thought about. Uh, but for example, Gandhi was telling everyone to go fight for the British, and then he got the Spanish flu, and then it changed his whole perspective, and he became a pacifist. Oh, amazing. Well, that I mean, what, what will come out of this, I think, is, well, we can't possibly predict it. But I, I think when you talk about changing stories, I think it's our our lifestyle has been totally impacted. I think it's going to, well, I'd like to think it's going to help us address the fact that we've been totally driven or a lot of society is driven by consumerism now. And maybe we won't be as consumer, <laughs> uh, we won't be consuming as much. Uh, we may find that we don't need as much in our life. We need a better quality of life. And I'm sure that will have some impact on your stories. But I, 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 I know someone immediately said to me, oh, God, we're going to have a lot of COVID plays. I just know it because it's going to be the end thing that people are going to write about. Do you think that's what's going to happen? Are they going to be COVID plays or are they going to be plays that are written because someone's been affected by COVID? Not, well, not yeah. infected by it, affected. Yes, yes. I, I, I actually am talking about the latter. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you made that distinction because it's true. I don't think we want to have a whole lot of trendy plays that are just about COVID, but I think it's impacted us so much in thinking about the earth, climate change, um, dealing with each other um, in a more just way in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the tragic death of George Floyd, all those things have really impacted us. So I, I wanted us to be, my students and I are looking at being open to that, not necessarily, you know, it, there, there are some great COVID plays that I have been hearing because they were really wrestling with things like personal responsibility underneath it. Uh, but yeah, uh, there's a side of us also, that's what, something I told my students, that we're also welcome to not deal with it, or if we want to make something lighter, or, so what, for example, one of the first exercises I did with my students was I said, okay, let's make a list. What makes you feel good now? What makes you feel bad now? What don't you know about? Mm. And then some th sometimes things are on all the lists. So, but the reason I wanted to make that list is because I don't know if you found this, but it's really important to find things that sustain us right now because things are hard. So what actually makes you feel good is extra precious. And things that we used to do that made us feel good, like going to a full theater, for example, uh, we can't we can't even do, right? So so trying to find those things is super important to help help us be uh, kind of survive this really. But things we used to do, like I used to love to uh, 
browse like in a used bookshop for example or go to the library even which is kind of nerdy of me but i loved going to the library and and browsing but now if you touch a book it has to be quarantined for 72 hours right wow. so something that you did before that made you feel good you can't really do so um but walking in nature is something that we can do more of where we live right so do you think your um do you think your students because what age range are your students in? Well, it, it depends. So, I, was, I know you teach at a lot of different places. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, right now they're, they're the widest range imaginable. So I would say like, uh, um, 18 to 70, I think right now. I, I'm just, I'm wondering, um, because I, at a, I'm at a certain age, so how I'm looking at things is probably a little bit different than somebody who's in their twenties, who, uh, thought they're, um, college life was going to be so different and um so i'm when you're talking to them i'm i'm wondering if if there's a commonality between the 18 year olds and the 70 year old or whatever in terms of what makes them feel good or uh this uh, going out into the uh, uh outdoors whether that's something that they're making choices on or is there a commonality about what makes people feel good now do you think it seems that it seems that connecting to nature tends to make people feel good, but there's a lot of sadness for sure. I I was pretty sad on my first day of teaching this fall because there were so many kids. It was their very first day of university. Right. So, so I tried to make it an occasion, you know, like, welcome, it's your very first class. But I still felt kind of sad because yeah. I, you know, and, and also what am I hearing? Like if they write a piece that takes place in a classroom or a theater, we kind of all go, oh because we miss it well i just got a i got an email from a, a, a choreographer performer this morning saying once he moved past the grieving he was able to start to create work again oh that, that's that, beautiful isn't that beautiful it's sort of like okay and i think all of us in this business playwrights um, designers directors stage management um, actors have all kind of gone okay we have to deal with the grief of, of the loss of this other world because it's all it could be potentially different from here on in and this could be a, a really good thing for the performing arts if we can figure out a way to um, go get people back into our theaters but also look at the style a, a different style perhaps and I'm wondering if if the work that you're doing as a playwright with the these teachers as a teacher sorry um, looks at the the possibility of how we might have to change our style of creating work um i know that there's someone out there who's directing a piece that the whole piece is staged so that the actors don't have to get close together even though it's a very intimate piece so it's changed the style of the performance and, and i wonder in the writing whether that is coming up as well because we're also of course trying to do some of this work in a way that we can stream it so we do a live performance, but we're also doing a stream performance and putting something on screen is so different than putting it into a live performance where only it's only live performance. Well, that's such a good question. I'm, we've It's a long one, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think that we've, well, let's see, I'm trying to parse out your question because it was, it, like you say, you, you brought in so many great things in there, but the main question is, how how has it, how has COVID or the fact that we have to social distance on stage impacted playwriting? 
Yeah, and how, I mean, how is it, if we're talking about actually creating something that's going to cross to, it's not only going to be live, but it's also going to be seen on screen and not be film. Well, and I haven't, I haven't wrestled with that as much as you have. Like in some ways I've been following what you've been doing at the fire hall, which is great, um, but difficult, I know, but you've been, you've been working um, to, to bring back live performance. So you've, you've figured out all these things about social distancing audiences, you've brought back music, you've brought, you know, um, and so I haven't really wrestled with all of all of that yet although um my play i'm gonna just say yes, wait a minute my yeah, play is yeah. about this about the yeah. ladies that wore these capes and um in my ancestral islands of the azores uh portugal women used to wear these capes for about 400 years and they look like the capes in the handmaid's tail uh and they're kind of a portuguese form of the burqa and right now people are saying that's the ultimate social distancing garment Right. And when I've been performing these pieces online for Fulbright, Portugal had me do a presentation, um, for example, every time I do a reading of it, I, I did another one for you, Mass Dartmouth online, and everyone said they relate so much more to being being told that you need to go stay at home and if you go out into the world you have to mask yourself or cover yourself or stay apart. So those were things that when I started the play I didn't even think about. Or for example, now, I mean, it would be very easy to do a socially distanced uh, performance of the play because if they're wearing these huge garments, they're going to be apart, right? Tell us the name of the play. Oh, it's called um, Capes because, uh, but I've gone through several titles like Incoberto and Hidden because uh, there are so many stories about women wearing these capes, which have now become a touristic symbol of the Azores that uh, I found it fascinating. I was just able to be in the Azores, Portugal last year in 2019 and interview uh, women and research rare archives and interview men as well, because sometimes men were speaking for women. Um, there were some stories from the LGBTQ community as well. So uh, I, I was trying to find out why people wore the cape, why it became this symbol for the Azores, why people aspired to wear the cape, because I was also quite concerned by the kind of racism in Canadian society that we were seeing with women wearing the hijab and burqa. It seems like a real breakdown of intersectional feminism to me. I don't know about you, but... Yeah, no, it does. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you kind of got women from the West or maybe white women saying like other women shouldn't be wearing this garment it's oppressive and then you know you've got people using it as a symbol for the rollback on women's rights and protesting in the US Argentina and Ireland wearing these capes and then meanwhile in Vancouver there have been uh, women who've been stripped of the burqa on the sky train and at the airport so I wanted to know from women that wore this garment or valued this garment what the experience was so uh, I've, I found it a really precious project to work on. And I got a tiny grant from CalArts, where I'm an, uh, an alumnex, alumnex, I guess, yes. <laughs> <laughs> an alumnex, um, to start experimenting with putting it online. Because I don't know about you, but I noticed some of the early pieces online were done so fast that people hadn't thought about design, they hadn't hired a director, they didn't have very good mics. And so it I thought, can't we do better than this? So, so I got this little grant to experiment and I was able to take advantage of a couple of things. Like 
you're bringing up that we can stream it. And what's wild is we can connect all over the world. So I had one of the Cape monologues performed in the Azores by an artist there. And then another team I have has Mercedes Batiste Bonet directing, uh, working with Ian Garrett, who's a designer of online performances. And we were working with uh, Alana Macias, who is a uh, writer and performer based in Austin, Texas. So all of us are working on this project. And also I worked with um, Marissa Chibas, who's the head of the CalArts acting program and a, a really renowned Latina actress in LA. So all of them, I wrestled with all of them about how can we make Zoom theater better? Well, and that's kind of what I was getting at with my question about, are you talking about this in terms of uh, with your with your budding playwrights uh, about how writing a piece for theater is a little bit different than writing a piece that's going to be for theater and streamed. And you're talking about how you're doing this and being very aware of it. Um, and I agree with you. I think a lot of the Zoom pieces or the pieces that I've seen ha have been basically what I would call bad recordings of live <laughs> theater because live theater is designed to be live, not designed to be recorded and streamed. And unless you're conscious of that, we have a, we have the chance of alienating people from theater. If they see bad theater on, they're not going to watch it. So it sounds to me like you've come up with a way to actually address this with a piece that is really about, covering everything up. I, as you were talking, I was wondering, I wonder what Elaine thinks of this after her trip in 2019, when she did this research and found out, and I'm curious, I want you to tell me why the women said they wore this piece or why historically they wore it. But I'm wondering what you feel now looking back. I mean, I would think you would probably think somewhat differently about it, given that we are now all wearing masks and trying to isolate ourselves. Okay, so how do I view the Cape differently now? Well, okay, there's two little stories I could tell you about that. One is that I was surprised that we all related to the piece so much. I don't have to work very hard to get us to relate to the themes of what these women are, are dealing with. Because uh, like, like the burqa, women aren't really supposed to leave the house without a social distancing garment. And that might've been something that was difficult for us to relate to before, but now I don't have any work to do to get us to relate to that. Right. Absolutely. When in thinking about this, I went, well, all these traditions that we have or traditions that various religions have sometimes may come from an issue of safety. Uh, um, and it has become, in some cases it's become very oppressive or we might view this as very oppressive, but the, the initial reason people did something probably came from a need to survive or to be safe. And then it's translated or transferred into becoming something that is uh, seen to be religious fundamentalism or something. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about in the Azores, was it from a religious perspective that the Cape came or was it just safety or to keep warm or <laughs> I'm being facetious obviously, but there, it came from something. Yeah, no, you're not being facetious. It's funny because there's just so many stories about it. Like at one point I said, maybe this is just Gore-Tex. <laughs> yeah, a kind yeah. of Gore-Tex, yes. Like you know. we're protecting ourselves from the, the ocean because they're, I mean, it's an island. I'm sure some of the storms are pretty impressive. Uh, so was that a choice that's now become a, perceived to be an oppressive act? Yeah, well, 
what was interesting there is that my grandmother aspired to wear the capes. So I just inherited all this embroidery from her where she's got little capes sewn into it. Um, people were too poor to have capes. So, so basically, if you had a rich cousin in Brazil, you could afford to get a cape. So a lot of the women were considered kind of snobby that had the capes, right? It was fashionable. So it was a, cla a class thing. It became a class thing from the sounds of it. Yeah. And when I researched the burqa, I found the same thing was true in the Middle East. Middle class women had it. And it's kind of sad, but it was a way to show that you were wealthy enough that you shouldn't be raped on the streets. So people that didn't have that protection didn't, you know, you didn't have a wealthy family, you didn't have connections, then, then you couldn't afford it. So it was a kind of protection. So, that is that is truly uh, amazing. <laughs> I, I did not. Re I mean, I kind of thought that in my brain, but I kind of also didn't understand that that's that that it really was a class thing. It really is a, a an economic class thing. And and then also the Azores, like all of Portugal and Spain, there was a Moorish Moorish occupation. So some of these traditions came into the culture. But there's a lot of argument, which I find super interesting, about the origins of it. Was it fashion from Spain? You know, was it because of the Moorish occupation? Was it just because of Gore-Tex, you know, needing? Yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, this is sort of going off topic, but I, I, I remember, of course, and in some cases, it's still encouraged, when women had to wear skirts, regardless of what the weather was like, and pants were totally uh, 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 seen to be made you too masculine so therefore i mean my last year of high school i think was the first year and i'm old uh was the first year that i could wear pants to school so it's sort of like uh there's that opposite and uh, when i say about skirts there's the opposite from the comment in terms of the burqa protecting a woman from being raped there's this other thing that came out about okay women have to always wear skirts which as we know are very difficult to run in <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it it all ties in like this uh, woman I met in the Azores is named Susan Burkhart, Burkhart and she is a retired, uh, her husband was quite ill, so they moved to the Azores and got a house. She lived in the New York area, and she told me when she first came, women were all required to wear skirts every time they came to the city, heels, hose, everything. So because it's an isolated place, uh, it was somewhat conservative. So even, you know, in the 30s, women were still wearing, I think they stopped wearing the capes like in 1960. Wow. Right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then women even in the 90s, I think, or 80s and 90s were still required to wear skirts and be very proper when they yeah. went to the city. So it, you see like we're just, you know, we're on this path as women where we're able to wear more of what we want. But when I started, you might find this funny. I thought, oh, my God, I wish I could wear a cape all the time because sometimes you don't want to get dressed to go out and get milk or whatever. You know, you just think, great, I just throw something over myself, go out there, do what I have to do, come home. You know, I felt that would be kind of freeing, right? No, I, I, I couldn't completely see that. I have a very long coat that I put on when I want to go out and I don't want to dress up because the coat covers everything. Um, but I don't want to wear it all the time. That's the difference is I don't, you know, we want to have choice. And I think it's fabulous. It's moving in that direction. Um, hopefully uh, it will stay in a positive way and we won't go back to The Handmaid's Tale or that amazing uh, book or your amazing play, which we're going to see at some point, I think, hopefully in a live theater. Um, I wondered about um, what actually was the trigger point 
or, or what is the trigger point for you? You've written plays about the environment. You've written plays about so many different things, Elaine, and uh, you're recognized all over the world, actually. Uh, and certainly in the U.S., you have a number of people who are very strong advocates for your work. Um, what makes you want to write a play about a certain con that concept or content? That's such a great question. I actually wrote a whole piece about that because they come from so many places, right? And you just, once it comes to you, it's like a gift or something, you want to just follow it. So uh, Fado, it was because I realized I hadn't heard any Portuguese plays in the US or Canada, and I didn't know any Portuguese playwrights. And so when the Playwrights Theatre Center had a three-year residency for a big idea, I said, well, I want to write a Portuguese play. And as you know, um, even the Portuguese community who came out to some of the talkbacks to our show were like, why would you do this? And I said, well, it's time we have a play. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, it's very true. And, and people came out because uh, I remember people saying, oh, I, I don't agree that Spado is the saddest music in the world. I think it's this. I think it's that. So it provoked a lot of dialogue around Fado as well, which I think uh, uh, people from that are not just Portuguese uh, love and but they have opinions on people have very strong opinions on Fado. Um, but you also writ, wrote uh, Kid, Kidamat, I don't, uh, um, and that piece was about uh, pipeline. Uh, and and did that just come to you? I mean, are you just walking down the street and you go, I want to write about this? Oh, that's a funny story because what happened was I was in between jobs. So I wanted to get a job working as an environmental reporter. So, so, so basically I was, um, I was told that could I write a sample piece? Because I was saying uh, that it was the Vancouver Observer at that time. They're the National Observer. So they said, why don't you write a sample piece? So I said, yeah, I think it would be really interesting because we are all connected to the north or different places throughout Canada, but the reporting doesn't always reflect that. So what if we did a piece from Kitimat? And they said, well, how will you get people to talk to you? And I said, well, I'm Portuguese and it's 50% Portuguese, so they'll, they'll talk to me. And so <laughs> they did, but I was just like, I was having the worst time being a reporter. I had so much research everywhere they were under like a that what had happened was Enbridge was going to put an oil pipeline through there and they were the fastest declining town in Canada so I wanted to catch up to the residents and look at all the stuff that they were considering and it was just taking so much time for me to do these to you know to write this piece and do these interviews but fortunately my dear friend who uh, has past actually Arthur Horowitz who was my theater professor at CalArts called me and said hey uh, there's a commission to write an environmental play would you would you be open to that at Pomona College in Los Angeles and I said yes because it seems that I'm writing a play I'm not a very good environmental reporter <laughs> because I have too much research I'm seeing everything from all sides and then while I was writing the play what was just wild was that they were they decided to vote on whether or not they wanted the pipeline to come. So they became like the only municipality in North America at that time to vote on this. So the, the BBC in Britain came, everyone was coming. So while I was writing this play, I, I had to catch up to what the citizens were going through. And I ended up centering on a story of one sister who wanted the pipeline to come because they wanted to revitalize the economy. I mean, they were the fastest declining town in Canada. And uh, another sister who uh, 
you know, connected with her mother's nurse and started going out kayaking and connecting with the whales in the channel up there and the nature there. And the two of them really come to loggerheads. So well, and I, I think that happens so often in families, the, the great divide, as it's said, about one, one might want this and one might want that. But it's interesting because that decline of Kitimat, of course, because it was a huge smelter, there was a huge smelter there. So it was all, it was already driven by resources uh, and that had created huge impact on the lo local indigenous community uh, and had, had uh, also provided a lot of prosperity to that town. So when it started to decline, of course, there would be the, would, there would obviously be people who, who wanted the economic resource development back, which would be coming through the pipeline and those who'd go, well, this is what it did to us before. So uh, I, I'm sure it was a very interesting time and very, very challenging for you to maneuver your way through it. Um, did you always want to be a playwright or how did you get into theater? Why are you doing theater? and all the other things you do. <laughs> well, I guess I, I got it. I don't know. Did you get into it very young? Uh, no, I didn't get into it till I was in my early 20s. Oh. I knew I knew I wanted to be in it. But in my uh, my lifetime, uh, where I grew up, it was the arts were a big frill. Uh, you did music or you did this uh, community theater if you wanted to do that kind of thing. But no, it was uh, arts was not something that was accessible in terms of a lifestyle it wasn't it wasn't sustain you couldn't sustain yourself and so what was the spark in 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 university then or um i went to i mean i'd always wanted to act uh in our drama class <laughs> drama class i think i led the 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 group to try to get a drama class going in my high school um but uh for me i decided to i got in a terrible car accident um uh, in California, actually, and decided, okay, I'm going to go back to university and I'm going to study law, but I'm going to take a lot of drama classes. So when I went to university, of course, uh, I soon found out that I really wasn't going to study law, that I was just going to, I found my family in theater is kind of how it happened. Um, uh, my As we all do within the theater, we, we all call ourselves a theater family, even though we have our own families. So that's kind of how what happened to me. But I was going to be an actor, but I got hired before I graduated university as an actor, started working and then went, I mean, I had the audacity right from the get go to say, I'm going to be a director and a producer. And everybody looked at me as if I was like, hey, you can, you haven't even done anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that kind of thing. But, but um, it, I, I like to say sometimes that I fell into it because I had a passion for, for uh, the arts that came from my family who were musicians, um, but they were farmers, not musicians in, in their minds. Um, now that's my story. What about you? Well, uh, when I was eight years old, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but uh, this is kind of a funny story. When I was 12, one of my friends had baked some cookies and uh, she, um, she wanted to sell them. So I thought, okay, well, let's put on a show. So we put on a show for the whole neighborhood. We took fairy tales and had puppets and all this stuff and, and revamped the whole story. The whole neighborhood came, she sold all the cookies. And then this mom was like, why are we hiring like clowns? Because I kind of grew up in a middle-class environment in Silicon Valley. So they were, so they were like, why, why are we hiring clowns for kids' birthday parties? We should hire you. So we got this little <laughs> business going and I was so serious. Like I would take, 
take the money we earned and reinvest it in marionettes, some of which I still have, but I'd be like, we have to reinvest in our business. (laughs) (laughs) And so there you went. (laughs) But I love that story about you directing and producing because uh, I started as an actor and then I felt like all these stories were missing. Like, yeah. Like where are the stories that where women are centered, for example, right? And there are so few. And so then I kind of got into leading as a director and adapting things, but there were so few women doing it at that time that now when I look back, I'm kind of astounded like that you you decided to produce and direct and that I decided to direct and I was artistic director of some small companies in Vancouver when I first arrived and Well, I think for me, it was also that I didn't see any stories that were really Canadian. Uh, I mean, the stuff that we were doing in my high school and having come into our high school had nothing to do with what was happening in Canada. And even when I was at UBC, uh, there were very very little work that we worked on um, that was Canadian. So for me, I think once I got the opportunity to be here at the fire hall, then my whole passion to be able to kind of develop what I saw as a Canadian theater that meant different voices and different stories became a driving force. And it seems to me that the plays that you're writing are also being driven by a connection to stories that aren't being told um, or that we haven't seen on stages, um, which I find well, that's what I really admire about the work you do. You take chances on stories that nobody else would necessarily take a chance on. I mean, I can't, I can't say that for Fado because I thought that was a, a piece that, it was a Portuguese piece. I don't think, um, and this is not judgmental on the piece because I loved it, but it wasn't necessarily a risky piece, but it was a piece that nobody else had ever done. So Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And I also, I forgot to mention that I have since found all these Portuguese playwrights in North America, which is great, you know, to be not so alone and realize that people were doing this work. And um, yeah, thank you for that. I, I were agree they writing you. Were they writing Portuguese stories or were they uh, people of Portuguese heritage who were writing stories? They, they were people, they were writing or Portuguese. Is there a di- or is there a difference? Uh, Yeah, well, that always comes up with works from distinct communities. Like, is every play I write naturally a Portuguese play? Maybe, you know, like I found out later, like, well, maybe that's a Portuguese play. I just hadn't thought of it that way, right? (laughs) But um, uh, a lot of people were explicitly writing Portuguese stories. But what's interesting is Aida Journal in Toronto, who's a scholar and a playwright, was telling me that a lot of them were in Portuguese. Okay, okay. Written so, in Portuguese and then perhaps translated into English or, or, or the language they were going to be performed in. No, they were performed in Portuguese. Portuguese. So, th- so that's part of it, too, is a lot of communities that have been working all around us were working in their, their language, their language, not English. So, I, you know, that explains why in some ways we, didn't, we don't always know the history of all the stuff happening around us. Right, because it's being written in the, in the uh, first language. Yeah. Individuals first language. Do you find theater different in Canada than in the US? Because you go back and forth quite often or you did, I imagine, before COVID. Yeah. Um, I would say yes, definitely. Um, but what's so interesting about COVID is I don't know about you, but it's it's allowing us to kind of parse out what are some of the differences between being Canadian and American 
because right now they have such a tragically raging epidemic and here we've managed to uh, work with it or or keep it keep our numbers our mortality down much more than they have so that points up some of our core differences and i always find this really tricky i i guess perhaps there's so many things like we we believe in gun control arts funding healthcare. Healthcare has a huge impact on on us artists like a lot of them have to take on you know when they're emerging have to take full-time jobs just to have health care well, and that's what I've found in terms of the people that I, uh, my connections with uh, artists in the States is that usually they have a full-time, more uh, regular job to support their ability to do the arts. Certainly the case of most dance companies, a lot of playwrights, and I'm sure in some cases, a lot of uh, individual artists that are working either in theater or any of the, any of the art forms really, because they don't have that uh, health care to fall back on. Huh. The other thing I think is that I'm a beneficiary of all that work you did to tell more Canadian stories, because when I arrived, there were a lot of Canadian plays to learn about. And I, I think that all of those stories are very precious. I find that any people that aren't telling their own stories, which can be very common, is it, very sad. You know, like if, if you're telling stories from somewhere else and always importing them and watching television that's from another place, it, it's kind of sad to not realize there's stories in your community that matter and well it doesn't validate who you are if you if you if you're not if you're not able to share a story about your own life or your own community it kind of um doesn't validate your value i mean you're looking to your values from something that you're seeing somewhere else or that's been written somewhere else not to, I, not to say i'm certainly not suggesting that we shouldn't be having american plays here or british plays or australian plays uh, I, I feel that uh, Canada has tr is finally finding its way or has found its way in the last 40 years to having its own artistic voice. Um, and I think it's really exciting that we're getting more playwrights coming from young, and not just young, uh, emerging playwrights from different uh, cultural heritages. I, and, and, and the Indigenous voice and the way their stories are told is also very exciting. Um, That's another way I feel very much a beneficiary of your your work because I would say that's a huge difference in my work or in in America is that I mean I know there's so much more that needs to be done in terms of indigenous theater and supporting it and uh, but that's one of the greatest gifts in my life is that I've gotten to work with indigenous artists and seen work that you've done at the fire hall with you know producing indigenous artists and I think we're very lucky to benefit because many of the cultures and traditions in BC in particular have lived here for nine, 10,000 years and have different values often, often have a different relationship to land or ancestry or story. I mean, it depends on the person and their life experiences, of course, but that's something that really distinguishes us as different than the U.S. And do you think that um, the standard play format is the way stories will continue to go? I mean, uh, like when we're talking about bringing in different voices uh, or voices that haven't had uh, access to stages before, uh, it, my my limited experience tells me that that people tell stories in different ways, and these stories don't always fit into a standard uh, play format. And actually, have been criti I've been criticized for that by 
critics in the past that the play that the play doesn't work or the play is not a strong play that we've chosen um and yet the story is a really strong important story and it affects the audiences so how do, do you think there's a a difference in how people will tell stories and or people tell stories i guess is that's the question <laughs> absolutely and i'm glad you brought that up because i i think that we work gets attacked in all kinds of ways you know and uh without the critics or the people attacking you even realizing that they have inherent bias as to what makes a good story or what matters or what should be told uh, and and so those things are i kind of have brushed those things aside but i think those things are difficult and take some working through uh, i i found even i was teaching uh, richard wagami's beautiful book indian horse and dennis foon the playwright and screenwriter he adapted the screenplay which is beautiful and he came in to talk to my students and one of my students um just kind of said this is the same old story i've heard it before and i had to say well are you sure <laughs> you know <laughs> maybe you're just used to a certain kind of story because you hear it a lot because one of the things that's really innovative about Indian horse is you expect it to be a story of somebody who um, goes from a tough situation and becomes a star, becomes the hockey star. But instead, you know, he comes up, a, he brings in lots of other cultural values like, uh, you know, the injustice of cities and homelessness and some of the things that he went through in his youth, making it not possible for him to I don't want to give away too much. No, no, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece. It, it's and and the fact that he, uh, and also what hockey does to uh, the the body and and the racism and um, that's now actually finally being addressed in the major sports leagues. Uh, uh, how that impacted that young man as well. I mean, that's all in there. It's it's a fabulous piece. But it's, yeah, and it's it's not the same old story at all. It's just a different look at a yeah, different and if you, kind of story. Yeah, and if you expected it to be a hockey story about like how he overcame adversity and then became a hockey star, you know, you might be surprised. But yeah. if that's what you expect of a story, you maybe will think it's less a story for some reason. So it's, it's I think it's worthwhile pushing through that criticism. Well, I also uh, I have observed that women playwrights quite often write quite differently than men and and i always bring up the question of of you know whether the climax the whole climax thing is something that we should be considering that men have one climax and women have many so maybe that affects how we write plays as well and i this is a an, an adult podcast so i think i can talk that way <laughs> <laughs> i but love that yeah <laughs> but is it is it not true we tell our stories differently we don't always necessarily go to the big payoff um yeah yeah, and plus what's interesting, I realized uh, when observing my male writer colleagues is they, if, if you think about it being a, a man and seeing, inheriting all this literature and stories centered on men, um, they have to look and go, how am I going to be unique? How am I going to stand out? Whereas a woman writer or a writer from an unrepresented community, just doing it is unique. So we have a different, we have different, that's different right from the outset. So I agree with you about the structural things are different. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky because we haven't had a chance to really study all the differences because we're so, it's so, there's so few women playwrights produced in Canada. 
not in your world, you produce lots of women, which is great, but overall no, it's hard to tell all the patterns. I mean, I think, I think one thing that COVID, I think COVID has helped contribute to this. And I think um, certainly the Black Life Matters movement in the States has, has sh shook things up. I think there's, I think there's a lot of thinking going on within our arts organizations about what is the best way to go forward to be inclusive um, and to be reflective of who we are because Canada is so different from where it was a hundred years ago or 50 years ago when I started there's there are more people writing from uh, minority communities or from the other if you will um, and I'm curious about how how you see the shift um, happening, whether you see a shift happening or whether it's just in my mind that I'm seeing a shift happening. But I, I feel like there's a, a, a real movement and that theater will come out of COVID uh, in a very different way, that there will be a different approach, I hope, to how we make our programming choices and how we involve people in creation. Uh, do you think that's fair to say? Oh, I'm very hopeful. I don't know. Do you know the We See You Watt movement in the U.S.? Have you heard of that? No, I don't, haven't. I should oh. have. But <laughs> oh, no, 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 it's okay. It's, um, well, I, I ended up, because of working in both countries a lot, I ended up being invited to all kinds of anti-racism websites and movements in the wake of the tragic death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, and there's an amazing movement called the We See You White American Theater, which they sh say W-A- Oh, sorry. Yeah, I am. I'm a, I am. Oh, you know that one. Yeah, yeah no, I just yeah. didn't know the acronym, but yes, go ahead. Continue yeah. on, please. Well, I don't know. You've probably been following them, but some of my mentors, like Susan Laurie Parks, who I got to study with, who's the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize, was a signatory. Some of my students, like Georgina Escobar, who was a playwright from Mexico that I mentored at the University of New Mexico when I was a head of playwriting there, uh, were signatories. And what they have been asking is, or asking all the theater companies across America to respond to the racism and the ongoing white supremacy and uh, asking how their hiring practices are going to change. They have a list of demands. Uh, and I've really been moved by that. They've started showing some pictures of staff. I don't know if you've seen that, like, of you know, at various theaters. And it's really striking to see when you see so many white men running theaters, you think, oh my God, there's only one person of color on this whole staff of 50 people. How, how much pressure must be on that person <laughs> to try to, try to um, make change that people don't necessarily even, even uh, see or care about? Or So uh, I think that that's been use, a really useful movement that is, at least in the United States, has meant more and more theaters are saying, I'm changing my policy. Well, I think that's happening in Vancouver. Certainly people have been making statements um, and trying to make change. I mean, I, I think one of the things that, uh, and Fire Hall, I have to say, is pretty white looking. Um, and uh, we try to certainly involve artists from all cultures in our programming and how we move forward. There will be shifts here as well. What I'm trying to find a way to address is, is, to build a, a community of, of theater artists that are reflective of Canada, we need to have artists who are not just artists, we need to have 
individuals who want to become involved in arts administration, who want to become involved in technical theater, who want to become in box office and all the areas of the organization. And I'm trying to figure out how best to do that within our organization, other than to post, which we do, um, because there are certain jobs that people don't go, oh, I want to do that. I just really, really want to be a front of house manager, or I really, really want to be um, uh, a uh, administrator. I want to write grants. And, and I, I think that for the whole, for it all to be holistic, we have to have a way to encourage those who are sitting behind the scenes to know that they can be part of the scene as well. Because I access to stage is one thing and being able to perform and being able to direct and to be able to design. That's one part of the business. There's a whole other part of the business that we want voice different voices in as well. And I don't think we figured out how to do that yet. I mean, I certainly think Savage Society with their apprenticeship program that they're running is really trying to build that core of indigenous uh, art, uh, not artists, but the theater workers, indigenous theater workers, um, to support uh, the indigenous stories that they want to tell. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on how we can get beyond just the creative side of things. And maybe it is just by doing the whole shift creatively that will encourage others to come into the other roles. But it's a bit challenging to figure that out. Very challenging. I mean, I guess I could just tell the story of what I ended up doing at the University of New Mexico because I was also artistic director of the biggest uh, new play festival in the Southwest United States as part of that job. And so we produced work, works by our graduate students who were indigenous um, and Latinx. And uh, so one of the first things I did was I asked the students who were the playwrights, I said, well, um, you know, what's something you'd like to see change? And they said, well, the whole acting pool has no, nobody who speaks Spanish, nobody who's Latinx, anyone who's studying theater, there's no indigenous students. So what can we do? So I had to change some policies within the department, which allowed us to cast from a wider pool out, you know, both actors within the community and bringing in professional and emerging actors from the wider uh, Albuquerque community. And so by making that one change, what happened also, they I set up a program where people had access to a professional director uh, from whatever tradition they were from. So if uh, Kate Weiss, who's a Canadian director, came in um, to direct feminist and more experimental play, which allowed that playwright to connect to women experimental work networks and be connected to that tradition. So when she graduated, she could get more work and I, I brought in Sheila Towsey, who is the running the Native Theater, they called it Native Theater Wing at, yeah. the, at the Public Theater in New York. And uh, she came in to, I, I raised the money to bring in those directors. And so when she came in and directed uh, Comanche Women by a Comanche playwright, uh, Terry Gomez, Terry got commissions and started connecting to all these networks. And there were actors in her play who didn't consider themselves actors because we had to do all this outreach. And we started having actors who were indigenous in indigenous writing with an indigenous director with a mixed cast. And they said, hey, I think I want to be a theater major. Well, and I think, I mean, that's, it's by getting this, getting the stories on stage, which we're now, I think is happening in Canada. I just don't, um, I haven't, figured out we used to have a training program here where everybody had to and we did it for five or six years where everyone had to do front of house box office 
some marketing, they got acting lessons, they got to be in plays, but they had to do every aspect of the business in a way, if you will. And some of those people went on to be creators and performers. And some of those people went into arts education. Most of them stayed within the arts world, but none of them became arts administrators or general managers. So that's, I think, one of the, the our next steps is to make the theaters more inclusive on all levels. I mean, I think it's happening slowly, I believe, um, but uh, perhaps there's a need to focus on that side of the business as well, because as you're saying, there was one person in that group who was uh, not a white person. And when you were referring, I'm referring back to what you said earlier, uh, yes, they would have held, had to have uh, tremendous power to actually be able to view, uh, explore, express their concerns or their their experience. But I feel that the more people that we can bring into the picture who are doing other things beyond just creating, um, the, the more inclusive theater will be and the more reflective it will be of our country. No, I think it's really important because what I, what I call it is like... Um, Kind of a feedback loop that's positive so that's stu that student who decided to become an acting major he was in a kind i we managed to create a a positive feedback loop where it's like this is somewhere i belong yeah. this is somewhere yeah. i want to be and i, I was very lucky because when i was um, 17 i was at a performing arts high school which was really unusual because they bust in white kids to desegregate the school to have it be a you know like a fame yeah, fame yeah. Kind of school yeah. where we did performance and we were in residence at a repertory company kind of, you know, like the fire hall. So as teenagers, we came in and we apprenticed. So I was an apprentice to an artistic director and I was mentored by the wonderful James Reber who set up, uh, has, has mentored so many arts leaders and I learned how to produce and so many playwrights don't have that skill, right? It was just such a gift. And I realized that makes it so you can make work you can you can start to foster your own work or find the resources or you, you know i think it's that was something that my graduate students did did too we all produced the festival together i think people really underrate those arts administrative skills but well and i think they're very important to have i mean they're great fall fallback ones because if you're going to first of all you have to this is a very competitive business if you have to write a grant you have to know how to write a grant and as an individual artist quite often you don't so I mean Simon Fraser's training program is sort of like that they're 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 kind of working to help ensure that their people that are studying there can actually produce their own work uh, so that they're not waiting for somebody else to hire them um, and, and a lot of fabulous uh, creators that are in our community right now have come out of Simon Fraser, as well, of course, of Studio 58 and UBC. But it's just a, a matter of let's find out about the whole so we can tell our stories in the way we want to tell our stories. And uh, uh, so that's just, a, a, I think, the next step, perhaps. Or maybe it's already happening. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't want to discredit anybody that's actually already doing that kind of work. And we have a lot of produ producer apprenticeships going on in the town, in town, I think, and I think they're very important as well. So I'm going to ask you a question that um, I find kind of curious. Um, in the U.S., and, and you, can, <laughs> you can respond however you want, you, Portuguese people are defined as, are, are part of the Latinx community, are they not? In Canada, they're not. And I'm this curious. is 
it's such a, it's not a big deal. I just find it really interesting um, because someone once said to me, well, I've always felt like I'm not part of the whole either because I came from Eastern European and Eastern Europe and, and there was a whole discrimination against you, Ukrainian people or people who came from Eastern European. So I'm, how do these definitions happen <laughs> um, and why? Well, there's a lot of, certainly in the U.S. and in Canada, Latinx is predominantly described as people who are from Latin America, from Central and Latin America in general. But there's also another term, Hispanic, which um, can refer to Spanish and or Portuguese people. So sometimes Latinx doesn't include Portuguese speakers. So a Brazilian would maybe not be considered Latinx in some organizations and be considered Latinx in other organizations. But really the problem is, is that it's a category that was a census category defi you know, defined in a new place, Canada or the US. So it's like, how do we defi define who these people are? So interestingly, there was an article last week where this controversy was just sort of raging like the portuguese american journal were like wow all these people are being counted as hispanic by the u.s government by the new york times so they were listing anyone who worked in a public office or in the arts who was of portuguese descent as hispanic and some people um and and non-white so so Portuguese people were like, are we white? Are we Hispanic? What are we, right? You know, so so there's this kind of ambiguity. So the way that I've dealt with it in my life is like, um, I really appreciated that the Intar Theater of New York, where Maria Irene Forna is the great playwriting mm. teacher and writer, she, she, they at that company defined uh, Latinx, or I guess it was Latino, Latina theater as anyone of Portuguese and Spanish descent, right? But that's very different than Latinx if you're talking about people from Latin America who are often um, have more of a mixed race heritage, often have more indigenous uh, heritage. So, you know, are we European or, you know, it's very complicated, um, but it's partly because it's just external. So whenever um, I'm asked to participate in something Latinx, I go to the organization and say, how do you define it? Yeah, I, I think that obviously these definitions came from the patriarchy uh, and the colonizers. They started that way. But sometimes I feel now that that uh, the definitions are being used in uh, a, a perhaps um, a protective and necessary protective way uh, or an inclusive way to be able to share commonality. And I think um, sometimes that can be also a negative and sometimes it can be a positive. And I, I guess some in the in the world that I would like to live in at some point, it'd be great if people weren't defined by either skin color or language. But um, that may be long after I leave this 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 planet. Um, and I just I only brought it up because I I know I've seen it used in both a negative and a positive way to define people and. Uh, I hope in our business we can rise above that and just try to build an inclusive voice in Canadian theater. Um, now I'm going to ask you if you had masses of money and you didn't have to write a grant to get it, uh, what would you do with it? If somebody said, okay, Elaine, here is some cash. You can do whatever you want with it, but it has to be artistically related. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, 
I would keep on working on this CAPES project because what's interesting to me is that there's so much, it's kind of an anti-racist, anti-heteronormative, anti-sexist project at its heart uh, because it's, it's gathering stories from women of all races and men and LGBTQ plus and uh, I, by having this very, very small grant right now where I was able to work with three different teams, I, I learned so much and I began to think like, hey, maybe a play is like a site where you can go watch various pieces at your own pace whenever you want to. And they're all kind of like maybe video art, but, but that could be a play now. So, and the fact that we're all geographically different uh, at different places, we could all tune in together. So that really excites me because I'd love to work with directors and designers and actors of many cultural backgrounds and employ them in this tough time and explore what we can, what we can do. And what, um, what stage is this, is this at? I mean, obviously as a producer and director, I'm always very interested in finding out where work is, but where, where is this piece at in terms of being ready to do that with? Is it in a workshop stage or are you getting close to being ready? Is it going to happen next year or five years well, from now? Or <laughs> it, Yeah, it's going to happen next year. It's, I have, um, I've workshopped most all of the pieces. I have a good draft of it, but I'm also reworking it a little bit in response to my collaborators right. or, and I'm sometimes adding pieces if people are really interested in something like the Spanish flu of 1918 is one of the new pieces. And as I work on it, I find like people are so excited about it that they tell me my grandmother was a woman of the Cape you know, and I say, really? So I, I, I'm able to interview some people very far away that are drawn to the project and add little pieces. But overall, I've got a good draft that's ready to go. But like I say, it's evolving just a little bit in response to being online. And the basis is really the, the cape out of the Azores. It's not like you're looking at capes around the world or coverings around the world. Not currently, because... Uh, because one of my colleagues was pointing out how strong it is to speak from your own cultural tradition. It ends up being easier to. to I'm not suggesting you rewrite it. I'm just curious. <laughs> no, no, no. That ended up being something that I wrestled with. Like, should I ha interview the woman who had was stripped of the hijab on the, on the sky train? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's, that's always a possibility. Uh, but that's part of why if I could do anything, I would hire people from lots of cultural backgrounds to work with because I still haven't worked with an actor from, the Middle East who might have a different view of the Cape, you know? So this is your expanded dream piece that I've given you lots of money for. And then there's the reality piece, which is actually sounds absolutely fascinating. So I look forward to reading it at some point uh, and I'm sure uh, I'll enjoy it a lot. Uh, I just wanted to share for everybody that's listening, something that Su Suzanne Laurie Park said about you, um, because I think, those of us who read a lot of plays are very familiar with her writing, Pulitzer Prize winner. She said, uh, she described you as a wonderful writer, tremendously gifted, reliable, and innovative. And I certainly think that that is what you are. So before we wrap up today, I'm going to see if you have a piece of innovation in yourself and if you can uh, do a dramatic pause for me. Well, you brought me back to theater, which is so beautiful. Um, and I kind of want to make like a beautiful tree that reaches, reaches high and reaches out and digs deep with its roots into the earth, because I think we've got to 
dig deep and reach high, which is something I post over my writing desk. So that's what it means to me. And I hope that we start restart in all the ways you're talking about in a more just way. Yes, let's hope so. Um, I th thank you so much for spending your time with, with me today. Uh, and I look forward to more conversations like this in the future, hopefully in the theater bar somewhere, but, uh, or out at a show. Uh, but thanks so much, Elaine. And I hope that uh, when we open up our stages, we'll see many more of your plays because they're also very provocative and innovative and make me think certainly when I read them. Thanks oh, so much. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful opportunity. Thanks, everybody. Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council and the City of Vancouver, and Fire Hall's many individual donors and supporters. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions or feedback about today's podcast, please direct them to firehall at firehallartcenter.ca, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Thanks. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Art Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees, or its supporting bodies. Thank you.